This has been a, a long journey. Last week I shared with you a statistic from a recent Gallup poll that said, still, today, currently, nine out of every ten Americans uh, claims to believe in God. Nine out of every ten. Over 90-something percent of Americans uh, believe in God in some form or fashion. It doesn't mean they're all Bible-believing Christians or church attenders. And it doesn't necessarily mean that churches in America are growing, because that's really not the case. And, uh, but, but that is a staggering statistic. And yet, many of those people, of the 9 out of 10, might feel a bit uncomfortable, even some Christians, with the idea of ex- really experiencing God. Really knowing and doing the will of God. Because that, that to many seems, um, you know, many might call you absolutely crazy or think we're, those of us who would talk like this, are delusional at best. And yet the Bible is very clear that God intends for us to know him. Some of us know what it's like to grow up in church traditions in which we're taught, basically, that God doesn't. God doesn't personally relate with us. He does generally relate with everybody, but not personally with you. God relates personally with maybe clergy, maybe a pastor or an apostle or a prophet or, you know, a bishop or you choose the title. And then you get to relate to God through that person. And yet that's not That's not what we find to be the case in the Bible. Not what we find to be the case in the Bible. So we have, so so far in this series that we've been, or this uh, class that we've been doing on Thursday nights, we've covered all seven of the realities of experiencing God. These seven realities that come from Henry Blackaby and the people who put together that, uh, that material. Quick review. Reality number one is that God is always at work around us. Number two is that God pursues a love relationship with us that is real and personal. Number three is that God invites us to join him in what he is doing. Number four is that God speaks through the Bible, prayer, circumstances in the church to reveal himself, um, his purposes, and his ways. Uh, number five is that when, whenever God speaks and it invites us to be, to join him in what he's doing, it will lead us to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. That crisis of belief is a normal part of the journey of faith. Leads to number six, that following God and joining him in what he's doing requires major adjustment on our part. We have to adjust our lives to, to what God is doing. We can't stay where we are and follow uh, and stay where we are and follow in what God is doing. Now, I'm not talking like stay where we are, talking about our seats, but where we are in our relationship to God and maybe to one another in our relationship to our community, that when God calls us to be a part of what he's doing, it will require adjustment. And the seventh reality was we come to know God by experience as he accomplishes his, his work through us as we obey him roughly. 
that as we obey God and follow him and what he's doing, we come to actually know God by experience. We no longer just know about God. We know God. Today, we're going to look at an absolutely critical, 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 critical component for knowing and doing the will of God. Um, this critical component is often overlooked. It's overlooked by the vast majority of the 9 out of 10 Americans that believe in God. And I would make the case that it's overlooked by a huge percentage of American church-attending Christians. Those who profess to believe in Christ. This critical component comes to us from a man uh, that came to know God by experience. As he obeyed God and God literally changed the course of human history through him. This guy knows a thing or two. Of course, you might have guessed I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Romans chapter 12. And this week's uh, Experiencing God memory verse is, um, is part of this text. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. Nick, can I borrow your Bible? Thank you. For some reason I forgot mine in my office. Now, the book of Romans is actually a letter. Uh, Romans 12. Um, this is actually a letter that Paul is writing um, to the Christians, to his church in Rome. Some of these people he knows, some of, a lot of them he doesn't. Paul, at this point in his ministry, has never been to Rome. Um, but this is late in his ministry, and he has a tremendous amount of experience walking with Jesus. And God has done some incredible things in his life uh, by this time. So we're going to read verses 1 through 13 together. And Paul writes, And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because, all, because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Because of the privilege and authority God has given me, I give each of you this warning. Don't think you are better than you really are. Be honest in your evaluation of yourselves, measuring yourselves by the faith God has given, has given us. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. In his grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak. Speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you are a teacher, teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If it is in giving, give generously. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. 
And if you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Don't just pretend to love others. Really love them. Hate what is wrong. Hold tightly to what is good. Love each other with genuine affection. And take delight in honoring each, in honoring each other. Never be lazy. But work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in your confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Let's pray. Lord, may you enlighten us by the presence of your Holy Spirit and the work of your Holy Spirit this morning. Help us, Lord, to hear what you want to say to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. These are very strange words coming from Paul. I mean, when you look at Paul, if you were to judge Paul's life, um, uh, in one, by one standard, you would say Paul was a tremendous success. He was an incredibly successful person. Um, the fact that we know his name today is astounding when you really consider who he was and how most of the people that have ever lived on earth are anonymous to us all. We don't know them. And only a few names come to us through history. And Paul is among them. We're here today because of what God accomplished through him. Paul seems like a great individual who seems to be a spiritual army of one. Is the army still using that slogan, an army of one? It's kind of a silly slogan, actually, an army of one. But I think the army used that slogan because they would realize it appeals to the American mentality. Our great heroes typically are all people who are strong individualists who don't need anybody else. The self-made man or woman. The one who pulls themselves up by their bootstraps and accomplishes the impossible because they choose to believe that they can. Those who go into uncharted territory, carve a life for themselves out of the wilderness. Those pioneering spirits who were strong individuals. That seems to be like Paul when we look at him, especially with American lenses as we look at his life. There he was, at times defying authority. This man stood before kings and princes. He stood before judges and councils. He stood before the emperor of Rome and preached the gospel. He seemed to be a spiritual army of one. And yet when you listen to what he's saying, it doesn't seem that he views himself that way at all. He doesn't really view himself that way at all. I think maybe Paul was really aware of something that we easily and often overlook. Paul was one not so good looking, some sources tell us, 
I think some sources say that he was, somebody described him, an ancient source, described him as, I think, short, with a hooked nose, and ugly. <laughs> I think he was balding, too. You know, I almost kind of envision him. You ever see The Princess Bride? You see, you remember that movie? You just watched it last night? What is the name of that guy? That guy, right? Only secondly known, slightly less, is never with a Sicilian when death is on the line. <laughs> that dude. Inconceivable. It's like, I kind of envision Paul like looking a little like that. I'll probably have to apologize to him in heaven, but. I mean, he's one man. In his life, he was rejected by nearly everybody. He was rejected by Jews, and he was a Jew. I mean, the Jews tried to kill him uh, multiple times. He was rejected by the Greeks. I mean, they, they thought he was silly when he preached um, in the shadow of, uh, of, of um, the Acropolis in Athens uh, to the meeting of the, uh, the philosophers there. Most of the people just thought what he was saying was absolutely absurd. He was rejected by the Romans, who were the dominant power of, of the world at that time, in that region. Eventually, he was executed as a criminal. I mean, we shouldn't know his name. We really shouldn't. How do we know about him? These words that we read here, how did it, how did it come to be that we're reading words that were penned by this man 2,000 years ago. I think this is part of what Paul knew. We know about him today, and we read his words today because people just like you and I The church. People just like you and I responded to the preaching of Paul and others. It was the church that read this letter over and over and over and over. The letter that we we're reading out of to the Romans. They read it. They studied it. They practiced what was taught in it. They persevered when they were persecuted. Uh, they were uh, persecuted beyond anything any of us have ever known. One source would tell us that, uh, I forget which emperor, was it Nero? Burned Christians around Rome to light the, to light the streets at night. I've stood in the Colosseum where many Christians met their death. And in the Roman Colosseum, um, to one side, there's a, there's a small pedestal with a cross on it. Because the Romans haven't forgotten the name of a certain martyr that died in that place nearly 2,000 years ago. They persevered. They studied this letter. They translated this letter out of Greek into Latin, out of Latin over the years, out of Latin 
into German, into English, into Spanish. These people were much like us. Among them were people who knew several languages. Paul probably knew at least three, if not four languages. An incredibly educated person. But there were also artists among them. Besides being um, educated, Paul was also a tent maker. Knew how to work with his hands. There was all kinds of people in this, this early community. And in the, in the Christian community throughout the centuries. We're reading this today because God didn't just use Paul to change the world. Paul was a part of the body of Christ, the church. Jesus said something really curious one time. He said, those who believe in me will do even greater things than I'm doing. I was sitting on the dock at Corona Aluminum one time and I was reading this, that text. And I was disturbed by it because I, I mean, this is like what I'm about to tell you is like a scene from the Bible. It's crazy. I was disturbed by the text because who's doing greater things than Jesus? I mean, seriously, raising the dead, feeding the multitudes. I mean, who's doing that? Where is that pastor, that prophet? Where is that evangelist? I didn't get it. Right about that time, a car pulls up. There's a woman, Christine, who was our secretary um, at the time. Her husband uh, was a Presbyterian pastor who just happened to be doing uh, some work in Riverside at the time. And he knew who I was, and he said, Hey, Steve, how's it going? I had my Bible in my hand, and I went over to the car. I said, How are you doing, John? He's like, All right. I said, This passage of Scripture, this bugs me. It says, people that believe in Jesus will be doing greater things than Jesus. He said, I'm not doing greater things than Jesus. I'm not accomplishing more than Jesus. I believe in him. I don't know anybody who is. This bothers me. And John looked at it, and he looked at me, and he said, I wonder if what Jesus meant was collectively, they will do greater things. What about Jesus' followers? Collectively, have they fed more than 5,000 people? How many hospitals and schools were built and established to bring healing and hope to lift people up by the followers of Jesus throughout the centuries? I think Paul was impressing on us something important here. That God, that God has formed us, his people, into one body. We belong together. We need one another. And we don't have a choice in this matter. My big idea this morning from the text would be something like this. We know and do the will of God together. Or we do not know and do the will of God at all.
we come to know and do the will of God together. Or we do not truly come to know and do the will of God at all. Sometimes we withdraw from from this truth, this reality that there are no lone rangers within the kingdom of God. Sometimes we withdraw from that truth or deny it because of selfishness or self-centeredness in our own hearts and lives. Other times, the trials and stresses of this life tempt us to withdraw from it. At the very times we need one another the most, those are the times we find ourselves pushing one another away and distancing ourselves from others. Somehow telling ourselves, I can figure out what God wants me to do by myself. But that's not the picture that Paul gives us. That's not the picture that God is giving us through the writings of Paul. Other times we withdraw from this reality or we refuse to engage in it because we feel insignificant. Because we just don't feel like we're important. We just don't feel like we've got what it takes to contribute meaningfully within the body of Christ. We feel like we're too damaged. We're too broken. We've got too much baggage. We're too messed up on the inside. If people really knew who we were, if people really knew what we thought or was in our hearts, they wouldn't like us. They wouldn't want us. We feel broken and insignificant, not talented enough, not smart enough, not whatever enough. I want, to, I want you to watch this story uh, that I brought on uh, video this morning. First, it reminds me that our Heavenly Father loves us more than we could ever imagine or dream or think. And that our Heavenly Father loves us not just from a distance, but by the Holy Spirit. He has made his home with us, and he loves us through one another. And he is relentless, relentless, relentless. I'm reminded that his strength is made perfect in my weakness. That his strength is made perfect in our weakness. It reminds me that we'll all cross the finish line together. 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 We know and do the will of God together. But we really don't know and do the will of God at all.
I think some of us this morning need to summon every ounce of courage we have and get into our chair. Yes, you're broken. Yes, you have weaknesses. Yes, you are struggling. Yes, you are hurting. No, you can't communicate it well. And no, it doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. But God's not asking you to fix all that, to put it all together. And then step, set your foot on the course that he has before you. He's asking you to summon the courage to sit down and let him get behind you and go. We need to summon the courage that comes from faith to sit, to step out, to refuse to barricade ourselves in from the world out of fear. God's not asking us to move forward on our own power. But his love for us runs far deeper than that father love than that father's love runs for that runs for that son. And I barely I, I don't really comprehend that. And yet God's love is so much greater. Some of us have got to stop saying I can't in fear. And stop convincing ourselves that God doesn't want to do anything. And stop coming up with every excuse imaginable. For pursuing the will of God. We need to stop trying to be strong enough on our own. Stop trying to be fast enough on our own. Stop trying to have all the resources to take care of everything on our own. We just need to sit in the chair. Just need to sit in the chair. Others of us need to allow the Spirit of God to work through us in ways that we have not. We need to allow the Holy Spirit to work through us so that we get behind others and loan them our legs when they can't run. We, we need to loan them our legs when they can't make it another step. And that will look different for many of us, depending on how God has gifted you. But if you're a follower of Christ, don't make a mistake about it. He's put gifts and talents in your life that aren't there just for you. They're there because God has placed them in your life for the benefit of the body of Christ. They're there. The Father is 
in you through the presence of the Holy Spirit to get behind one another and run and push and pull and carry. And all of us, all of us, myself included, need to stop looking down. Looking down at whatever is broken with us. Looking it down at whatever doesn't work in us. Looking down at all the reasons we have to be depressed. To, to be down. To feel like we want to give up. Stop looking down and get your head up and your face in the wind. And realize that the Spirit of God is moving in your life. And that Father is relentlessly running behind you. And you're going to make it across that line. Because He doesn't quit. Forgive me for preaching this morning, but are you hearing what I'm saying? See, Rick Hoyt doesn't feel his ability, his disabilities, because when he's out there on the course, he's not looking down at his legs. He's looking ahead. He's looking because he knows there's a finish line that's going to be appearing from the horizon, and he's crossing it because his father will not give up on him. And as he approaches the finish line, he lifts up the very things that are wrong with him. Because in his weakness, the Father's strength is made perfect. You may feel broken. You may feel like you can't. You may feel like there's too much against you. But it's not about you. It's about this Father who loves you more deeply than you could ever imagine. Who's not asking you to do it on your own. It's God's power. It's God. It's that heavenly father. Who will carry us through it all. No matter what obstacles. When we need carrying, he will carry. When we need towed through the floods of life, he's in the water ahead of us. When we need to go the distance, he's running behind us. And we're never alone. We're never alone. We know and we do the will of God together. We know and we do the will of God together. And we're crossing the finish line. No matter how late it seems to get. We're crossing. Stand with me.